This is We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy Sterling, your source for all things dating and relationships, where we hand deliver the tools and skills you need to love better so you can live better. I'm Darcy Sterling. And I'm Ashton Tardif. How are you, my love? I'm good. I'm good. Ashton is my niece for all of you who do not know that, and I will not be sanitizing my uh, love bombs for the purpose of this podcast. And today we are discussing therapy, both from our personal perspectives as patients, and then I as a practicing therapist for 27 years, will be demystifying that whole process of how to find a therapist, how to know if your therapist is the right therapist, and what to expect from therapy in general, because you know, it is such a veiled process. You don't even know what therapy is or what you should expect from it until you're a patient of it. So I'm really, really looking forward to uh, to diving into today's topic. It's therapy confessions. And how often do you get to hear from a therapist their perception of therapy as a client? Like, I mean, I don't know that that's going to be great for uh, for the profession in general, although I would argue because my, my, I've got, I've had some very mixed experiences as a patient of, of therapy. Um, but I do think that other therapists need to hear this. I think that we as service providers, you know, we're behind closed doors, one-on-one with clients or one-on-two with clients. If you're a couples therapist, you know, or one in a small group, if you're doing family therapy, their point is there's rarely another therapist in the room who can give you feedback. It's almost never, there's no checks and balances. It's a recipe for becoming apathetic. It really is. And my experience as a patient, you know, my experiences have been um, a mixed bag to say, you know, to put it mildly. I've, I've not walked away from therapy, generally speaking, feeling like my needs were met. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I suppose in a way it's good because it I became the therapist I needed. That's how I became. That's how I came up with my methodology. That's how I decided the the whole ways in which I was going to move people through the process of therapy. It is important to be able to unpack and create a relatively cohesive narrative of your life story. So to Mm -hmm. the extent that that matters, and it does, it does matter to be able to explain your likes and your dislikes, how your triggers came to be, what parts of your family history inform your proclivities or your sensitivities in, in areas of your life. That is valuable stuff, but it doesn't necessarily move you through trauma. And I came to therapy with a boatload of trauma and uh, by and large, you know, well, We'll get into that later. Well, yeah, I mean, that just segues into my actual question for you. Like, I personally know that I've been in therapy um, probably, I'm 27. So I would say I've probably been in and out of therapy for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. How about you? Because I know it's different. <laughs> um, so I added it up. I've had five long-term therapists. Um, wow. One of them was a psychoanalyst. Psychoanalysis requires that you're in multiple times a week. Uh, It just Mm -hmm. so happened that I was trying to suss out my sexual orientation at the time. So my ass was on her couch four times a week for a solid solid year and a half. Um, 
That was probably my least favorite experience of therapy. Um, Financially, I'm sure, as well? No, not at all. What was hard about that experience was I often felt it was it was sort of symbolic of my experiences overall in therapy, which is to say, I felt like I was talking into an empty room. Mm-hmm. And in analysis, you really are talking into an empty room. You're laying on a couch. Your shrink is sitting behind your head in a chair. You don't see the shrink while you're I in. I thought that was like a, a movie thing. Yeah, um, it is. But when you're going through a mental breakdown, th- where, where like your entire your your entire self perception is crumbling because you're questioning everything about yourself the way I was um, questioning my sexual orientation. I'd been married to a man that ended for, for reasons other than my sexual orientation, but I was pretty sure I wanted to only date women at that point. And because I'm somebody who really craves certainty in life, we can blame it on as we all do. Well, we, you know, some of that is like ingrained in me. I've never met people need certainty to the extent that like your mom, my sister and our other sister like certainty. Like we like answers, black and white. Gray is really uncomfortable for us. Um, I wanted to know what label do I belong to? What, What category am I in? I was not comfortable having a fluid sexual orientation. So, you know... Ultimately, I left that experience just choosing to identify as a lesbian. I was like, I'm never going to have certainty around this. So here's where I'm at. This therapy is a terrible experience for me. I'm not enjoying this. It didn't feel warm and fuzzy. I didn't feel particularly safe. I felt pretty judged by her. All of which is just to answer your question, how many years have you been in therapy, Darcy? So seven total, but I would count that year and a half of analysis, uh, that's at least three years of therapy, maybe more. So I can round up to 10. I feel like I've been in individual therapy a minimum of 10 years, and I've probably been in and out of couples counseling uh, four, five, six years, something like that. So good. I'm like, I've got, I got some miles under my belt. (laughs) Yeah, definitely sounds like it more than I do. Um, so was that um, experience with the psychoanalyst that you just spoke about, was that your first experience with therapy or was that just one of the more memorably worse? Yeah, it was one of the more memorably worse. She was my third therapist. I was getting my PhD at NYU at the time. She was the best of the best. The dean of the school referred me to her. Mm. I was like, if this is the best of the best, we're in fucking trouble, man. Like, I cannot believe this is the best of the best. And then I've had two or three since. One was a trauma therapist. That was incredibly helpful. That was a really good experience. After Hurricane Sandy, Steph and I, my wife, Steph and I, um, we were living half a block or we live half a block from the East River. And the East River during Hurricane Sandy came into our building, filled the entire basement and half of the main floor. So when the lights ultimately went back on in lower Manhattan, which was a solid 10 days or two weeks. They did not go on in my building. And it was only then that I realized why. It was uh, it was horrifying. So Steph and I both went into our own EMDR therapy, and that was very helpful. That was very helpful. But of course, I have critiques about that as well. Um, you know. Yeah, I remember that 
Um, I luckily was not here for Hurricane Sandy, but just hearing you speak about it, I could literally feel and hear like the trauma in both of your voices, you and Steph's voices. Um, and to but- this day, we don't even use storage in our building. We won't use the storage in our building, which is in the basement because it was breached by the by the East River. We use storage, you know, diagonally half a block up where, where the water didn't didn't hit. And it's because like we lost everything and it's not covered under insurance. If it's an act of God, folks, yeah, I can't even. We love things like that. Little logistics, just mm, so fun. Um, but EMDR, that actually reminded me of a uh, experience that I had with therapy. Cause I remember you telling me about EMDR and you suggesting that maybe it might be helpful for me to explore because I had voiced wanting to get back into therapy in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I had not been in therapy for, I believe, like three years. So I was like, hmm, things are feeling a little off. Maybe therapy would be good. Yeah, um, that was a good run. Uh, but no, things were starting to feel clunky. Yeah, you know, I had always been in therapy for depression. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, that had always been my problem one of many, but uh, something switched in me when I moved to New York, uh, my second year, I was suddenly dealing with anxiety and I couldn't quite pinpoint the anxiety or why it was happening, but I was like, Hmm, something's adding up to not right here. And this doesn't feel like my good old friend depression. So, um, yeah, that really urged me to get back into therapy, which Coincidentally, um, leads to my worst therapy experience, which was an attempt at EMDR, which I really don't think that this woman, she was so sweet. She was licensed, obviously, but I don't think that she knew what to do with me and the EMDR. And I kind of just found myself tapping, doing the things and just grasping for straws. Just, And she was so unhelpful. And for me, the absolute worst part of that was when she actually fell asleep nodded off. Let let me be more specific. She nodded off. And I just remember like my eyes were closed and I opened them at one point because my ADHD was running rampant. And uh, are you listening to this therapist? Are you fucking listening to this? Are you listening to this? (laughs) When our clients are doing EMDR, we must be attuned. And that means not multitasking. That means connecting to them and looking at them, we're not only are we supposed to be attuned, but that we are literally supposed to be monitoring your nervous system, which we need to see you in order to do. So if your fucking eyes are closed because you're snoozing in a session, I mean, people need to learn how to call the fuck out. I don't understand it. I did I know uh, that story, Ashton? I'm actually not sure. That was my last session to say, to say the least, but. And I knew I like she I was her last appointment of the day because I was at my first job and like corporate America doesn't really give you a lot of space to prioritize your mental health. No, Uh, and you're always grateful when the therapist is willing to stay late to see you. However, do what you got to do to stay awake in the session, people, because that happened to me twice. Two different therapists. Two different therapists. What is that? What is that? I don't know. And I'll tell you, back in the day, we were trained to blame the client. So when I brought it up to the therapist, oh. this was therapist number one and number three, the psychoanalyst, I was told that I was bullshitting, which in their defense, I absolutely was. But if you're not going to give me structure, 
I'm going to put on the fucking Darcy show for you for an hour. And then I'm going to drop money on your desk. I, I, why I feel like I have to entertain. I don't know. I've always uh, felt that way. No, I felt that too. That was another problem for me. I feel like that might be common. I don't know, but yeah, I felt like she should have paid me. A hundred percent. Right. Instead of me dropping cash, walking out the door. And, and, and the second time I mentioned it, I didn't mention it the first time. The second time it happened, I mentioned it and I was told I was bullshitting around. Two things can be true at the same time. Yes. Was I, so, and this is why my way of doing therapy has evolved to the somewhat neurotic structured way that it is, because I don't, I don't put a client in a position where they have to figure out what to talk about in therapy. Mm -hmm. So it's the only situation where a service provider, you come in to see the service provider, either IRL or virtually, and the presenting problem that you bring to the therapist, if you don't continuously mention that in every session, it's never mentioned again because the therapist takes no responsibility for it. It would be like going to an attorney with a problem and then having weekly meetings and the attorney doesn't tell you where you left off with, you know, discussing that matter, what they've done in the interim to bring you closer to a resolution on that matter. It's all just passive and based on what the client brings into the space. Therapist is, we, we are traditionally trained to be blank slates, to not have a personality, to not um, to disclose as little as possible about ourselves so that the client can imagine any storyline onto us. Why I don't, I do know, and I disagree <laughs> with the whole, with that whole emphasis. I think that that was, that was a type of therapy that was appropriate for very privileged people a hundred years ago when everyone could go to therapy four times a week, mostly women who did not work, white mm -hmm. women, might I add, because every mm -hmm. other woman worked. Yep. And it, it's just, it, to me, it feels very irrelevant today. It, outside of just understanding the theory as a foundation for viewing problems, not as a way of solving the problems that your clients come with. That's how I look at psychoanalysis. Great technique to have under your belt, impractical in 2023, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think, I think the length of time that it would, that it takes people to get better when the therapist is completely passive. I, I, I don't know how anybody, I don't know how people change on a timeline that is appropriate today. You need- yeah. I would have no clients. I would have no clients if my clients did not get better rapidly. I know a lot of great therapists, but I don't know that they bridge the gap between where people are and where they want to be. I know a lot of lovely therapists, let me say that. I don't know a lot of therapists who, who, who specialize in helping people change because for that, I don't know a way to do that without being present in the session. And that doesn't include falling asleep in sessions. Well, that should, I feel like, be a bare minimum. Maybe you just stay awake while you're speaking to your client. Just a thought. But to go back off your last comment, yeah, all of my therapists have been lovely. But mm -hmm. only, I would say, one, maybe one and a half, I don't want to give her full points, really actually gave me tools to change. Which kind of, I think, leads to a question that a lot of people who are considering therapy often find themselves asking is, where do you start 
in the search to find a good therapist. And it's the Google. I mean, yeah. what do so, you do? Here's the thing. By and large, good therapy isn't cheap and cheap therapy isn't good. And that's where I'm going to start. I know it's such a I shitty remember answer. Saying that. I was like, a shitty answer. I know that that's a disheartening answer, but it's, it's, listen, here's the way therapists get paid. We get paid based on time. We cannot add more time to the day. So we work, let's say we work eight hours a day. There are eight hours in those days in which to see clients. If you work and work through insurance companies or on any of the therapy apps, you're getting paid nickels on the dollar. Nickels on the dollar, folks. So the way normal doctors compensate for that is they double and triple up on their caseload. They see people in 15-minute increments. Well, you can't work. Therapy doesn't work like that. We can't fold time and double it. So we really are relegated to only seeing people in the hours that we have available in every day. And if somebody is going to pay you nickels on the dollar, you're going to be really hard-pressed to meet your own financial obligations. And what that means is that the majority of people who take insurance are at the beginnings or at the ends of their careers, and they have to. Anyone who, who can manage without it says they don't take insurance and you can use your out-of-network benefits. Now, so that's, that, that's, that's I'm leading to the answer of how to find a therapist because some of it is predicated on, do you need to use insurance? Mm. You know, there are search engines like Psychology Today that you can use to find a therapist. Um, there are also, I'm going to have in the show notes, I have stumbled upon a great resource. This woman is a therapist and her philanthropy is on Instagram. Anyone who wants to find a therapist, she gets your insurance information. She gets all of your specifics, like what is it you need? Because it takes an expert to know wow. who's qualified. Yeah, Sarah's the bomb. And I will That's have amazing. I'll have her information in the show notes um at in in the description of the podcast so that anyone who wants her resource that use her as a resource can. But she's amazing. It really, really takes takes me about 20 minutes to find anybody a therapist and I'm a therapist, but I know what to look for. I know that there are specific certifications that you want to look for. So it kind of depends on what you're looking for. But here's the thing. Having a license doesn't mean that the therapist specializes in what you want. So A, you want a therapist with a license, and I'm pretty sure those are the only ones you're going to find anyway. Because I didn't even know there was an alternative. Well, <laughs> can I mean, not have a graduate. We graduate school without a license. The licensing is up to us. Oh, okay. Places like Psychology Today, and I can only speak to that one because that's the only one that I've ever worked with. Places like Psychology Today require a copy of your license for you to be listed there. So it's great because you know you're working with licensed professionals. But then part two of that is what is it you want? help with in therapy. And because you come out of school, you can say that you specialize in anything you want. And let me tell you, there's a very big difference, right? You didn't know that. It's that you? easy. When I first came out of school, I listed that I would work with couples. But let me tell you, when my wife started getting certified in couples counseling, and I saw how many years each certification took, I was like, oh, 
I don't do that at all. And I started listening to a lot of the courses that she was taking. And I was like, dude, I am so underqualified for that. I took that right off my bio and I never, ever looked back. So we can put anything on our bio that we want. It's right. It is important to make sure that your therapist is certified in whatever you want help with. Now, it, that said, that might be too neurotic. So that's why I'm saying if you need a therapist, you're going to have a resource in the show notes. We're going to connect you with Sarah. Sarah's going to get your insurance information and whatever else you need. Because the reality is, is that some people at the beginnings of their careers start off in networks and they're, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're going to work their asses off. They're going to gain the experience that they need to eventually not be in network. But it doesn't mean that while they're in network, they suck. They're getting right. That was my fear. My next question. So based on what you said, does that mean that anybody who is seeing an in-network provider or perhaps somebody who is charging them a reasonable rate, does that mean they're not getting quality therapy or that they're maybe not on a track to get better? So here's the deal. You come into therapy with a problem. I believe that it is equally your therapist's responsibility at the very least to pull 50% of the weight in making sure that you're working on a solution to that problem. And I think that a therapist should be able to articulate to you how they're going to get you there. Because if you come to me with a problem, I can tell you exactly how I'm going to get you from point A to point G, wherever you're trying to get. G but that's the- rare, right? I mean, I, I personally never met a therapist like that. I don't know a lot of people that have unless they go to you. I don't know. I don't know. The ones I've gone to have not been able to do that for me. And it's been very, very disappointing. It's been almost as wounding as the wounds I walked in the door with. So it's been very, very frustrating. Also, keep in mind, this is a podcast. I'm not giving all the details. There's, there will be exceptions to everything I say. These, these, I'm giving you general answers because I'm trying to move along through all the different questions you have, because you have amazing questions and I want to get to them all. So there will be exceptions to everything I'm saying. Young therapists can be skilled. Mm -hmm. Are they going to be as skilled as somebody 27 years in the field like me? Of course not. How can they? How can they? There's no way. It's not a talent thing. It's a skills and experience thing. That said, I hit roadblocks all the time in my work. And when I do, I call other therapists for consultation and I tell them my problems with my clients and a lot of them are much younger than me. And some of them have been, I mean, the ones I call are incredibly helpful. They're like my little tow trucks. They pull me right out of a ditch. And then my work with my client transforms. Most of us want someone who looks like they have what we want or looks Mm -hmm. like they represent what we want to be like at the end of therapy. When you're young, you want somebody who's a little younger, I think. Right. Yes, absolutely. I always did. I felt that way. I always wanted a younger therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, and what we know in the research is that the most important aspect to therapy, get this, it's not their skill set. It's not their specialization. It's not how many years they practice or how much money they charge. It's the relationship between you and the therapist. If that is solid, it is the greatest predictor of a positive prognosis. But how do you know if it's solid? 
It's got to feel like it's almost like like the therapist a lot. If you like the therapist a lot, it's solid. Like as a human. Yes. It's all based on the person. Now, I would argue, listen, my PhD was was a quantitative uh, research study. Basically, what that means is that I'm all about measurements and numbers. And I can't help but wonder if the reason why that's the strongest indicator of a good prognosis or whatever the prognosis will be, which is to say your connection to the therapist, I can't help but wonder if the reason why that's the strongest indicator is because the rest of the, because the bar is so low. You've had their client therapists who fall on, you had a therapist fall asleep on you. I've had two fall asleep on me. My EMDR therapist, who I loved. I opened my eyes in the middle of each. So in EMDR, your eyes are closed periodically while you're getting something called bilateral stimulation, which we can have a whole episode on what is <laughs> what the fuck is EMDR anyway. Mm-hmm. We can have an episode on that. I'm not going to do that here. But suffice it to say that as the client, your eyes are closed and periodically you open them, you look at your therapist and mine was texting her daughter <gasps> and acknowledged it. Like, oh, sorry, I'm just shooting a text off. Keep going. You're doing great. Literally verbatim is what she said. Oh, I did not. I've not heard this and story I have before. To so say, look, look, we're human beings, therapists. We have good days. We have bad days. We have moments in our life where we are just not 100% attuned and plugged in. You have to process that with your client. You have to acknowledge it. It's yeah. like any other relationship. You don't, maybe you don't do it in that session, but you do it in the next session. You say to your client, so how was it for you when you opened your eyes and you saw me texting and I told you I was texting my daughter? How did that make you feel? Oh, fuck yeah. Of course you have to do that because we have to model as therapists. And I'm so, I like amped up, jacked up, annoyed because as therapists, the, the expectation, we know better. We have to be better. So yeah, we don't get to be the way we are in our personal lives, which I would hope that we'd be better than most people in our personal lives. But it turns out that's probably faulty thinking as well. I feel like this is like Darcy slams the entire industry of therapy <laughs> in of we need to talk. No, but people have these real um, concerns and feelings as clients about therapy. I cannot even tell you at 27, how many people I know at my age who are turned off by therapy because of experiences that they've had just from trying once or twice. And it's so hard for me to like nail into their head, listen, they're not all like this. And it really is a problem. It really is. Um, But I have a unique question for you that I've personally never experienced because all of my therapists have been older women for the most part, and I'm straight. But what happens Or have you experienced this if you are attracted to your therapist or you find yourself developing um, an emotional connection? Yeah, Yeah, feeling for your therapist. It happens all the Mm, time. So we're trained trained in school to expect that. Mm. I want to normalize that whole thing. Human beings are going to be attracted to people across all walks of life. Because we're simply like, that's how we're hardwired. Doesn't matter what kind of committed relationship you're in, you're going to find other people attractive. Now, 
in a therapeutic relationship that's going well, this person is creating space for you and holding space for you in a way that probably no one else in your life is. Mm-hmm. They're listening to you with a set of skills that'll, that, that leaves you feeling heard, often validated, I hope validated and safe in a way that many of their other relationships can't compete with. It is very natural to feel, to develop feelings for your therapist. You work through that in therapy by acknowledging it. And you tell them? Oh, yeah, they tell you. Huh? Oh, they tell you. Yeah, no, they tell you. Wow. Yeah, oh. I had, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and I want them to tell me because, look, I'm a human being. It's a little awkward, but I mean, my feelings are irrelevant in the room. It's all about your feelings. It's not about my feelings. Mm-hmm. And what I want to yeah. do when you come to me or somebody comes to me and tells me like, I, I think there's something wrong with me. Like I'm starting to have feelings about you. Maybe they're fantasizing about you. Um, it's very, very important to normalize that and not minimize their feelings, but let them know that this is the test drive. I'm the safe person in your life. You will eventually get this in all your other relationships. They will deepen because of this one. But your willingness to come to me and tell me about these feelings, first of all, secrets just compound problems. When we keep secrets from one another, whatever it is we're struggling with just gains weight. And it becomes a bigger burden for us to bear. So now there's two people in the room that are handling the weight of that. And that hopefully sharing that minimizes some of the shame and embarrassment around it. It's like one of the most common aspects of therapy. People develop feelings for their therapist. Sometimes they fall in love with their therapist. Sometimes they're attracted. And we are meant to keep the space safe. It is never okay for your therapist to act on that or to suggest that there's any scenario under which you can make that work to just be clear. But what if, you know, you're assuming that the client is not ready to share or they never share with their therapist, their feelings or their attraction, and maybe they won't. Does that mean that the client needs to look for another therapist if they're not going to share that with them? Well, that's often what clients feel. And I can't tell you how many times on the last session with no notice that it was going to be the last session, I've been told that. I can't even tell you. And you try to create the safety at that point, or I've tried to create the safety at that point. But if somebody's going to be out the door, they're going to be out the door. And at least they had the courage to tell me. Mm -hmm. At least they had the courage to tell me. And it's all about like, helping them. If I'm sure there's no way to work it out, then I just want to help them close out our work, review all the things that they did that that they accomplished, and make sure that they have somebody to go to to continue their work. You know, and and oftentimes people are like, I need a guy because I don't want this to happen again. And there aren't many men in the field. So it's, you know, that's a that's whole nother thing. It's a whole too. problem. Yeah. There aren't many. Yeah. yeah it's and I feel like mental health in general for men, it's not as um talked about. It's more taboo than this for it women. Is. And I really hate that. Like I truly hate that. And I really like 
wish the narrative would change and I work to try to change it with even the men that I speak to that A, need therapy or B, express interest. Um, Which, speaking of that, um, brings me to my next question is, what if you don't have a specific problem? Meaning, what if I don't have a pinpoint of trauma or I don't have a specific issue that I want to fix, but I know something is wrong, something I'm not happy, something needs to change, but I don't know what it is. What do you what do you recommend that somebody do if they're thinking that therapy would help? So here's the deal. The best therapy, the deepest therapy happens when there's no crisis, when there's no fire really? to put out. Yeah. Yeah. My goal, Ashton, my goal is always to get the person out of pain as quickly as possible so I can do the real deep work. People mm-hmm. come to me. Most of my clients do not objectively meet criteria for therapy. Most of my clients come to me and they want more. They've they've been killing it in their careers and maybe they blink and realize like, oh my God, it's been 10 years I've been working my ass off. I need to build a tribe. I don't have the closest relationships that I want. I want a significant other. So by and large, my clients come to me and on paper, they look better than better than okay, much better than okay. But all, but usually they come to me and there's something, some pain point that brought them into therapy. It is my responsibility as the therapist to do an assessment, which for me is a very long session. I try to do it in two hours. I never succeed. I stop the clock after two hours so the client's not charged beyond two hours. But my assessments usually go three, sometimes a little bit more than three hours By the end of my assessment, I have all the major life events in that person's life. I may not have it perfectly fleshed out and colored in, but I've got the bullet points of like the major life events that they've experienced. It is my responsibility as the therapist to look at the presenting problem. Why did the person come to me? And then by the end of the assessment, say, in what ways do I think their history may be impacting how they're feeling, if at all? And then it is my responsibility, or I have made it my responsibility to in turn say, here's where I would suggest we begin our work. So you begin your work, and almost always I agree with my clients that what they want to begin with, I almost always agree that that's where we should begin. My clients generally know what's wrong. They just don't know how to fix it. Now, What happens then is we set a therapy goal, we decide on a therapy goal and a date by when we're going to measure our effectiveness, you know, our success in that therapy goal. And then every session leading up to that date, if you were to do like a quick screenshot, like like a 10 second audio recording, the content in that session should coincide, should make sense with the therapy goal that the client is working towards. We should not be talking about time management if your issues are intimacy related, right? Mm. Like what, and it's my responsibility to keep us on topic and make sure that we're talking about things that are going to bring them closer to where they need to be. It can be very anxiety provoking when you're not in a crisis to know what to talk to your therapist about. And Mm -hmm. most people will quit when they're out of pain, when they're out of a crisis. But that's really the opportunity to do the deep, deep, deep work that's going to give you the best bang for your buck. You know, 
you're not working on traumatic, you're not doing EMDR reprocessing on traumatic events when a person is in a crisis. You need a person to be stable to do that. You cannot do that when the person is in the middle of a crisis. They must be relatively stable, unless it's a natural disaster or a war situation, in which case there are very specific protocols that we follow to do effective EMDR even in that crisis situation. But by and large, the deepest healing happens in the pockets of time where a client's life is quiet. And I want to teach my clients that being quiet is actually okay. It's preferred. You don't have to create a crisis. You don't have to look for problems to bring to me. So the way my sessions, and again, I, I know I'm weird. I know I'm a weirdo, but I have set my sessions up so that people don't have to deal with this stuff. So oh, nice. my, sessions, my sessions follow a script. Clients complete something called a session prep form before every single session. On it, it's the same five questions week after week. My therapy goal is this. Main points of the last session were this. Homework assignments are here and they're completed or they're, they're partly completed. The majority of my session is spent asking clarifying questions about how they completed their homework assignment from the previous session and tweaking the homework assignments. The homework assignments are all geared to give them practical things to do outside of session. So we're not just mentally masturbating about wanting to be more vulnerable in our intimate relationships or more open to meeting new people or whatever the client's reason for coming to me is. For people who, who are interested in therapy and are, are have no expectations, should they be expecting their therapist to be giving them assignments, to be giving them homework? Is your model something that people should be looking for when they're going into consults, when they're starting their therapy journey? Because you, we know you're different and in, in a very good way. But, but, and I know I'm an anomaly. What I would say to, what I would say to people is this, you know why you want therapy. When you go to a therapist, you tell the therapist, this is what I want to work on. Do you feel capable of helping me with this issue, therapist is going to generally say yes. Or they're going to ask you why you have that question, which I think is a horseshit response to a question. Oh, It's yeah. very common in therapy to ask the client, well, why are you asking that? And then the client's like, well, I've had negative therapy ex experiences. And then, then that becomes the topic instead of the presenting question, which is, can you help me with this? And then you have to ask the therapist, like, how are you going to do that? And how are we going to make sure that like we're talking about this in every session? I, I would try to partner with the therapist and tell the therapist, I want to make sure that I'm not just giving you updates about my life, which is so often what therapy mm -hmm. turns into. It's certainly what mine has almost always turned into. Yeah. An update about my previous week. I often don't even know what the fuck my clients did in the previous week because I'm that laser focused. And I have to tell you, I would much rather talk about what they did in their previous week because I'm curious about their life, but that's not what's going to serve them. And here's the thing. Some people want a safe space and a validating therapist, and that's all they want. They just want that. Well, if that's what you want, then you hit the lottery because just about every therapist can do that for you. Yeah. Yeah. So as a client going into therapy, 
we need to be approaching this as not just a passive person waiting for the therapist to really just do it all for them. We need to go in there with a reminder and a goal each week, not only for ourselves, but for the therapist. I feel like a lot of people do not know that. And if your therapist is not doing what they said they were going to do, you approach the therapist and tell them, I'm feeling like we're not following the, de- the, the agenda that we agreed to. We call this contracting with our clients. It's not a real contract. It's just an agreement. This is what we're going to work on. This is how often you're going to come in on these days at this time. This is what I'm going to charge you. And, and so the client needs to say, I, I feel like we've d- become a little distracted and derailed. I wanted to work on solutions to this problem. How can you help me? How can you help me do that? And you give the therapist an opportunity to get back on track. And I'm telling you, if they're not there within two sessions and then consistent with it, that is not the right therapist for you. So if I'm in therapy, all right, I'm in therapy and I have, I'm not sure about my therapist yet. How many sessions would you give it? as a client before you call it? Is it like four, straight up four, like literally people either love me or hate me inside of four sessions. I'm not, I'm not a slow warm. I'm like, I'm an acquired taste that someone either is predisposed to, or they're not. And you do not need to be investing more time and more money. Therapist should be somebody who you feel like you could have coffee with. If you were to run Mm -hmm. into them in a cafe and they were the only person there, could you strike up? Would you want to strike up a conversation with this person? Do they look, do they look interesting to you? you? Do they look warm and welcoming? Are they inviting your, and and that is, it's kind of like dating. You know, you know, Mm -hmm. after the first date, if you want a second date or not, or you know, at least if you're repelled, if you're repelled, you know, I say, give you look. You've got two human beings who are strangers with each other. Not everybody knows how to create a super warm and inviting environment every single time a brand new client comes into them. But after four sessions, if you guys aren't getting in a groove, if you're not actually a little bit looking forward to therapy with, you know, putting aside the concern, like, what the hell do I talk about in therapy? And when that becomes a concern... That's something you bring to the therapist and the therapist should be able to give you guidance on it. And if they can't, it's the wrong therapist. Okay. I did not know this before. Um, I would have saved some money. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I handpicked every one of your therapists. So. No, just one. And to be fair, my budget was fairly limited because I was in college. But how much should we actually know about you? As Like, how personal does this get? Or... How do you approach that? We are taught to self-disclose when it's appropriate and only in service of the client. And the way that looks, so I'm more comfortable with self-disclosure than most therapists (laughs) because I don't like the antiseptic, sterilized clinical experience of shouting into an empty room with nobody responding to me. So again, everything I everything I do as a therapist is informed by my shitty therapy experiences as a client. And so I we are taught to self-disclose when it will minimize the client's shame or the client's uh, sense of isolation, being the only one struggling with this. 
I want to neutralize shame as quickly as possible with my clients. I don't lead with self-disclosure. I try to resolve it other ways because it can become very convenient to talk about yourself in sessions. <laughs> I, I mean, I I've, never, I've actually never had that experience with a therapist and would love a therapist who could actually, if you're a therapist who will talk about yourself a little bit, hit me up. Maybe I want to see it. <laughs> Seriously. But I've I've never had that experience, but my clients, when they're struggling, when my tools, when, when I have tried other things, I can almost always land on a personal story where I have fucked up 10 times as bad as they have. <laughs> and I just want to neutralize the shame and the power difference in the room. You know, there's nothing worse than struggling with shame on top of an issue. Shame mm -hmm. is secondary. It's a judgment about yourself. And so I want to neutralize that as fast as possible. I basically live my life expecting people to find out about it. My clients know they can ask me any questions, any questions about myself, about experiences that I've had. I like to say there's no inappropriate questions. There are inappropriate answers. That mm. puts all the responsibility on me. This is my field. I'm the one who knows the boundaries. I know how to keep you safe. So you can ask any question and I'm going to be very gentle when I have to set boundaries and it's not going to feel like a sledgehammer. But most people in my field are not going to respond that way. Most people are going to either respond with a boundary or a question about why you have the question in the first place. So the answer to your question of how much should you actually know about your therapist is this. You should know enough to feel comfortable getting in the door. And then I would argue, earn the right to their story the way you would any stranger and trust that your therapist is going to, when your therapist is not self-disclosing, it's because they worry about their ability to self-disclose appropriately. It's So that's it. That's the answer. We know that it works, but most therapists really hear those boundaries loud and clear and they take it as gospel. I mm -hmm. And more flexible. And I love that, honestly. That's like, life. I, and I don't fucking apologize for that. My clients struggling with shame and I've done something, I've been in a situation pretty shitty. I'm going to tell them. And, and that's helping them. That's what you're there to do. I mean, yeah, it, it I, I'm going to tell mind. them. And I'm going to tell them. And, and the thing is, because like I've healed from so many of these things. And so I can give them a little bit, be the example of, look, I don't struggle with this thing anymore. I've got other problems. It's possible. Like it's possible. But, yeah. Yeah. I think that's amazing. And I really wish more therapists would adopt that um, philosophy. That can go um, south. That can be a problem because part of the reason so. I tell people not to self-disclose is because it can turn very, this can, it can be very gratifying to the therapist to be able to talk oh. about themselves session after session after session. And then how do we differentiate this space from being with a friend. That's mm. the difference between the therapeutic space. So when I self-disclose, it doesn't go on for long. And I often will add time on because I'm, you know, I, and I won't charge for it. Like I just will add a little bit of time on to the end to make sure that I didn't take away from their session time. But I'm hey, you don't suck. Like, I know, no, I know, but I am not crazy. And other people aren't going to do that shit. They're going to stop you at 50 minutes. That's mm -hmm. it. Doesn't matter where you are in the story. That's all we have time for this week. Those words have oh, never come out of my mouth. They I want to ask. That is all something that I literally. How do you feel about that? I feel like we already know how you feel about that, but like, how, how do you feel point, about that? 
How do you feel about that? <laughs> um, like personally, it's happened to me and it feels jarring. I lose my train of thought and then I feel in me, I feel embarrassed. I'm like, I almost feel like I've overstepped my time or like, it's a weird feeling. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to grab my things and shove my trauma right back where it came from. And we'll just pick up where we uh, left off last week. It's terrible. It's terrible. I think it's poor technique. Every one of my clients knows that if my client that I'm working with right before you is not perfectly wrapped up, you will get a text from me and it will say, I need 10 more minutes. I will not end in the middle of a traumatic story or a real. Listen, people need a warm up in therapy. We can't all walk in the door and unzip neck to groin emotionally and just do it because it's in our calendar and it's scheduled. We need a warm up. We need mm -hmm. time in the session. So for a lot of people, by the end of the session, that's where they're really getting to the meat of things. And so if my client is in the middle of a heartfelt story, I am not shutting them up. And I realize that's not how everybody practices. But because it's been so rupturing and injurious to me when it's happened, and I can't even tell you how, I don't have a therapist who hasn't done that with me. I want to say, same, um, maybe once or twice, they gave me a few extra minutes. Um, but it was still a hard cutoff. Like, it's more the way you approach it, I, I personally feel, um, than the time itself. It's or they'll give me a heads up. Right. They'll be like, just letting you know, hey, we have five minutes left and I lose, I lose it. I lose my train yeah. of thought and right. it shakes me out. Do you do that in yourself? Um, do I do that as a therapist? Yeah, like as a heads up, like, hey, we're running. We've got this much time left. Just so no, you know. no, 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 I don't do that. Uh, I can tell when shit is getting real and when we're, we're <laughs> going down a, a conversation that's going to land us. And then, no, I don't say that. I can tell when somebody is going in that direction. And I, I take responsibility for the pacing of the session. And I will just find a way to either extend it or bring it back and earmark it for the next week. While underscoring that I'm very interested and I want to hear this. That, that's a really interesting point. Not to like literally go off what you just said, but showing interest in what the client is sharing. Softens. Everybody knows we have hard stops. Everybody has a hard stop. At least, at least communicating to your client. Look, thank you so much for sharing this. Here's what I heard you say. Here's where I think we need to go with this. I want to be mindful of time because I want you to walk out of here and feel okay. How do you feel about us hitting pause on this topic and then circling back to it next week? And we'll finish the last five minutes of this session talking about something a little bit more neutral because I know you have a big presentation or I know you have to go to court right after this and you don't need to be hemorrhaging. And I also yeah. can't go another 30 minutes because I Got don't it. have appointment after appointment after appointment. You have to get, and this is the shit that takes 27 years. Like this is the shit that they don't teach you in school. They do teach you like conceptually that you're going to have to manage the time and you're going to have to craft sensitive, caring and compassionate and respectful ways of closing up conversations. But it takes so much rinse and repeat to be able to do it artistically. And, and we don't always, I don't always get that right. 
So I want to ask one more question that I feel is really common. Um, and this is how often do you recommend that someone start seeing their therapist? For me, it was always weekly. And this is probably a case by case um, situation. But what is, is there like a general rule of thumb? I do not work with clients other than weekly. Um, therapy is like learning a new language or going to the gym. If you do that, twice a month, go to the gym twice a month and expect a buff body. You're going to get the same results in therapy twice a month. It's bullshit. Therapy twice a month. If you can go to therapy twice a month, there's no sense of urgency there. You're basically, I don't even know if you're maintaining. If you're not growing and changing through the process, if your therapist isn't changing and growing with you and staying ahead of you, if you're just but bouncing into therapy once a month or twice a month, giving an update, your therapist has no room in the session to say more than hello and goodbye. That is not therapy. You know, you got to come in weekly. You got to come yeah. in weekly. And my goal is to keep people just to one time a week. Of course, there are crises here and there, but by and large, my clients only come in once a week. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like that's mostly standard, but um, I feel like I haven't heard people ask that question. They're not sure how often to start off on therapy. I know you just got back into therapy recently. How's that been Understandably. going? Yes, for sure. How's that been? Um, It's been a welcome reintroduction into my life. Um, obviously, there was a trauma that caused me to really need to go back into therapy. But it also has made me very aware of other smaller things, the other roots that were there that were um, almost unrelated to the trauma that I had been ignoring, that yeah. had to be dug up again. And that really does speak to your point, because I am in a much better place in terms of healing from that trauma with my ex that I kind of was like, oh, I'm feeling a little bit better, but there are so many other things that need to be discussed. So yeah, it's going well. Um, they haven't fallen asleep yet. So um, I would say that so far, so oh good. God. So that that is going well until it's not. So I'll keep everyone posted on that as well. Between the dating and the therapy, you know, life updates will be coming. Thank you for that. Yeah. And on the topic of therapy, for our next episode, we'll be talking about holiday survival tips for those who might need it after the holiday season. Um, very difficult time for some people. And Darcy is going to give you guys some awesome tips and tricks for navigating this tricky time of year, especially if you don't have the best relationship with your family. And I will tell you, um, fun fact, you may not know this, but therapists, we have busy seasons. They're now. We get inundated with requests for therapy towards the end of the year. And it's because, you know, the added responsibilities, particularly to women, the added responsibilities that come with the holidays, the added uh, obligations of travel, the forced proximity with family. Not everyone yeah. has a perfect family, you know, and then those wonderful questions that we get asked at the holiday dinner table, which is dating anyone new? Oh, dating God. I'm special. All those advancing questions that stem from people who love you and they just don't know what else to say to you. They're just really trying to start a conversation. People have no idea how like jarring those questions can be because they make us all feel so judged. And right. uh, yeah, I'll be helping 
I'll be helping to navigate those questions and how not to have one of those horrible moments at the dinner table that is the stuff of your worst nightmares. Yeah. yeah. Or, or a mental breakdown, you know, whichever happens first. 100% trying to keep people out of inpatient hospitalization here. Oh, you're really doing God's work. Stop it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. Um, thank you for this wonderful conversation, Ashton. I learned a lot about you. I didn't, I didn't know some of those things about you. I always, I love that I'm learning new things about, I think I know everything about you. And it turns out I don't, <laughs> I don't think anyone knows everything about me, myself included. Uh, but I learned actually a lot about therapy too. And in my next session, I'm actually going to be approaching it through maybe a slightly clearer lens. So thank you. You're very welcome. You want to read us out? Yes, I will do. We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy is a Sterling Standard production. Special thanks to Amanda Cristiani and Stephanie Sterling. Our engineers are us. If you like today's show, please follow us by searching We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy. If you love today's show, please give us a rating. We'll be back on Tuesday with a brand new episode. Thank you so much, Ashton.